Thank you. I will say though, uh, if you don't have your elements, you may want to uh, you may want to grab some now, real quick, or or have someone come help grab some, because we're doing things just a little bit differently um, today than normal. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna partake in the Lord's table together, and we're gonna do it in kind of some parts. And so uh, just join us today, and if you don't have any, feel free to grab some. Well. Growing up in Southern California, one, we didn't normally have problems related to weather, um, but also I used to have a Disneyland pass every year as a little kid. I feel like I was spoiled. I had a Disneyland pass every year as a little kid. We only lived 30 minutes away from Disneyland, so it was so easy, and uh, all, the, all the young families that my parents were friends with, they also had little kids, and, and they also had Disneyland passes, so it just made sense. Well, because we went so often, and because um, as you may remember, Disneyland can get quite hectic often, especially with crowds. My mother always wanted to make sure we had a way back if we ever got separated or if we ever got lost. She wanted to make sure we knew there was a way back. And so even before we got out of the car, often my mom, as if it was like a, a quiz or a, or a school final, would kind of test us on, what do you do if you get separated? Many years later, I don't actually memorize all of them, but I do remember for the most part, um, the first thing was don't go frantically looking for her because she knew if we did that, we would just get farther and farther away. Instead, we were supposed to go find one of the Disneyland workers with like the fancy little badges, um, or she said if you're really lost and, and, and worried, um, find another mom, find a mom to help you out. And I think the idea was that we would no longer be alone, but we would have someone with us. And if we found someone with a badge, they knew the way. They knew the place, they knew the way back, and they knew how they could get us somewhere for help. And then finally, just know mom will always come looking for you. As far as I can remember, I only needed to use these rules one time. I was a pretty good kid. I didn't run away. Um, but I needed it just one time. We went to Disneyland with an extended family, and you know when you do those extended family trips, it's easy to get lost or confused. Um, and one day we were there, it was nighttime, it was close to the parade, and so the main street's filling up with people. We're trying to figure it all out. And as we're walking, my cousin um, sees something shiny in a window. And he stops me, and he's like, oh, look at this. Like, we need this. To this day, I can't even remember what it is. But it was enough to, to pull our attention. And just in that moment, uh, we became separated. We lost the group. And that was, like, my one moment that I was like, oh, wow, I feel lost. I, I feel I feel far away. But being the, the good little kid that I was, I started reciting my handy-dandy rule book and, and telling them what we're supposed to do in this situation. I'd memorized it for so long, uh, but my cousin was a little bit older, and he was having none of it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll take over. <laughs> and so he thought he could find his own way, even though we already had a better one. He thought he could lead us through the crowd and, and find safety on his own, but he was wrong. So just as they anticipated, instead of getting closer, we got farther and farther away. Thankfully, after a little bit of time, we gave up. We followed the plan. We found someone in charge. They took us out of the crowd. They took us to safety. And I think they kind of take you like to a spot where they kind of hold the people that get lost. And um, as we get there, there's our parents waiting for us, not giving up. They always were looking for us. But I, as I think back to that, I was remembering just kind of that feeling, that feeling of, 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 of what it felt like to be lost, what, what it felt like to be, to be kind of separated uh, from the safety 
See, as we gather around the Lord's table and as we kind of partake in these elements today, often we do so um, rightfully as a way to remember the body and the blood of Christ. And as we do that today, we're, we're going to do it with the same goal, but we're also going to look at an interesting psalm. See, we're going to look at Psalm 51. And if you know Psalm 51, it, it, it's famous for being a psalm that David writes after the prophet Nathan comes to him and he opens up his eyes to all the sin David had been uh, committing and, and lost in. And so it's a psalm that I think is, is written after a moment in David's life where he had been lost, but then remembered God. And so just join me. We're going to look at the first six verses. We're going to focus in as well in the body of Christ. So Psalm 51, start in verse 1. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. As I was reading that, the, the first line especially, I think, stuck out to me. And as I'm thinking about Jesus' body and remembering Jesus' body, and I think that first line sticks out because uh, Jesus' body is an act of mercy and an act of unfailing love. Jesus' body is that act of mercy and unfailing love. In Jesus' body, we get that first part of a way home. And we see that taking place as David's writing that. Even though he, he doesn't have this incarnate Christ as we do now, we don't have, but we see Jesus' body, this act of mercy and unfailing love. We kind of have this fancy word, I think, in the, in the church often, the, uh, the word reconciliation, um, and we use it often, and as a, as a youth pastor, I, I like to sometimes break it down um, as we're talking with kids, and I don't want to dive into it all the way because I think it's very um, complex and rich and deep, but I do think one part of it, the word to, to really lean into today, is this element of forgiveness but it's a forgiveness that brings you back into right relationship with God. And so it's like uh, bringing you back into relationship. Just a few weeks ago, uh, I was downstairs. And if you know, we normally have 9 a.m. Bible study classes. And uh, I got the pleasure of being uh, sort of like a substitute teacher for one of the classes. And it was great. We were looking at how Jesus is introduced in the Gospels, which I think is so right because it's Christmas time and we just spent time looking at that. But I was looking at John, and John doesn't do the typical uh, Jesus Christmas story and the manger, the nativity scene. John has this prologue, an introduction to Jesus in a much different way. But one of the points that John makes that's very important is he says that Jesus, the Word, became flesh. And I started to think about that. I was like, well, I don't think that hits us the same way because uh, well, we celebrate it all the time. We just spent a month buying gifts and, and dressing in red and decorating and trees and all that to celebrate a time where Jesus became flesh. But I think for his people it, uh, that John was writing to, it was important because um, there was a group of them that wanted to change that. There was a group of them that, that believed that the, the physical world was evil 
Um, and, and so Jesus couldn't have been flesh. He had to just be appearing as flesh. He had to be an illusion. He couldn't be a real person, a physical person, because if he was a physical person like us, well, he would be messed up just like us. And so I think they have these good intentions, right? They're trying to protect this idea of Jesus, but it has these terrible consequences. Because if Jesus wasn't exactly like us in his humanity, then he couldn't die in our place. And if he couldn't die in our place, then we would still be separated. But instead, John says that Jesus, he took on flesh because he took on flesh out of mercy and out of this unfailing love that David writes about. In Colossians, uh, Paul reaffirms this idea. He says, Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In this element of the body, we, we get this bringing back, this free from blemish, this free from accusation, this unfailing love is a self-giving love. The immortal, infinite, incorruptible, sinless God, he decided to take on humus in all its fullness, in all its frailty, so that he could bear our physical afflictions in order to redeem us. But I think that leads us to ask, well, how do we respond to this body? As we're holding uh, the cup or, or as we open it up and, and we start thinking about the bread and we start thinking about the body, how do we respond to the body? But I think one way we respond to Jesus' body is the same thing that David's doing in his psalm. It's by returning to him when we've lost our way. To say that David lost his way before writing the psalm, I think, is, is a grave understatement. But even though he was seemingly too far gone, I think David, and I think Nathan, knew that he could return to the God of mercy and unfailing love. That not only would God welcome him back, but as he writes, he would blot out his transgressions, he would wash away all iniquity, and would cleanse him from his sin. So how do we respond? I think just like David, when we've lost our way, we need to recognize our sins and bring them to the God of unfailing love. See, Jesus' body, we get this reconciliation. We get part of the way home, right? It's a way to return to God. And so, in a moment, I'm going to start inviting you to this element where we partake, but we're going to do it a little differently than we typically do. So if you want, you can start to open up the bottom part. Make sure you open up the bottom part and not the... The, the juice just yet but if you start to open up the bottom part and you start to look at the bread and, and as we typically do this we take a moment to remember jesus's body to remember the gift it is surely but today also like david perhaps we can spend a moment confessing and coming to the god who is full of mercy and unfailing love and so in a moment, we're going to do it a little differently. Paul's going to start to play a song. And as he does, I just invite you to, to, to spend some time, yes, celebrating his body, remembering the gift it is, but also spend some time confessing and bringing yourself closer to that God. Then when you feel ready, 
as the song is playing, sometime in the song, take it and eat. Paul? If you don't have your Bibles open or on your phone or wherever, I I encourage you to do that to Psalm 51, and we're going to continue in verse 7. And the first point here that I want to make is that uh, recognize that sin is a stain that is set. Psalm 51, 7 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David is recognizing that he is dirty. Sin has left a stain on him. And then we see in verse 11, you hear the consequences of sin in that broken fellowship with God. Verse 11 says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I'll never forget the time um, taking communion when I was about eight or nine years old. I was all dressed up for Sunday church, nice pair of slacks, white shirt, button-up shirt. And I had taken communion many times before, but something happened this time that was quite embarrassing. And it wasn't until after the service, out on the patio, hanging around with my friends amongst all the other grown-ups, that I realized that all the juice hadn't quite made it into my mouth. Somehow I had poured it down the front of my shirt. And now everyone could see that somehow I missed my mouth with that tiny little cup of grape juice. There was no hiding it. There was no washing it off, no rubbing, no scrubbing was going to change the fact that I had stained my shirt with grape juice. All I wanted to do at that moment was to cover up the stain. I tried walking around with my hand casually over my chest. And then I had the bright idea of taking a napkin and tucking it into my shirt while I ate a donut. Somehow I thought that was less embarrassing than walking around with a stain on my shirt. But the stain of sin is infinitely more significant than the stain on my shirt. Grape juice just ruins the shirt. But the stain of sin reaches all the way down to my heart. The grape juice stain tempts me to hide from others. But the stain of sin tempts me to run and hide from God. And like the grape juice, there is no removing it, no hiding it or covering it up. No matter what we try, the sane is still there. And Jesus points out the fruitless attempts of covering up sin when he says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The the stain of sin is set, which is why David pleads for the cleansing work of forgiveness. Point number two, passionate pleas for purging. Listen to verse 7 again, along with verses 9 and 10. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Now I say passionate, please, because I count six times, six ways in which David pleads for the cleaning, cleansing that comes with forgiveness. I think this passionate desire is rare. Rare in our vertical relationships and rare in our horizontal relationships. It takes humility, a true brokenness to rightly admit that we've done wrong to another. And I say rightly admit because we've all said, I'm sorry, when we really didn't mean it. But seeing our sin fully, rightly, that's a place few people are willing to go. It's a place of weakness and vulnerability. You place yourself at the mercy of another. I suspect this may be especially rare in those who have been married for a long time. So much is taken for granted and assumed, making actual confession and forgiveness rare. Rare are these words uttered. When I said blank, I was wrong. I was wrong in what I said. I was wrong in the way I said it. I know I hurt you, and I am sorry. Will you forgive me? So too, our relationship with God. We take our sin for granted. We minimize it, justify it, refuse to see it. But David, with the help of Nathan and the Holy Spirit, saw his sin and himself rightly. He recognized what it said about what he thought of God. His sin made clear that there was a treasure greater than God in David's heart, and this broke him. So David here is taking nothing for granted. He is crying out with all his heart over and over again. He pleads with God to forgive him. Now don't miss that God is the implied subject of each of these pleas. David knows his sin is against God. And David knows that God is the only one who can remove the stain of sin. 
God is the only one who can make David clean. God is the only one who can make the relationship right again. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become as wool. And as New Testament Christians, we know the cost of such forgiveness. For on the cross, Jesus not only bore the punishment of our sin by dying, the bread, his broken body, but he also poured out his blood for our cleansing. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, that is, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And Matthew 26, verse 28 says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And no one enjoys the brokenness of sin. But we all look forward to the joy of forgiveness. The joy that we receive from being forgiven by the, by the Father. Point number three. In Psalm 51, verse 8, it says this. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now notice the trajectory here. From bones that you have broken to rejoicing. From the weight of conviction and the guilt of sin to wholehearted joy. Have you experienced the relief or freedom, the peace, and especially the joy of forgiveness? And verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, who does that? Who helps the very one who has wronged him? Who offers a sacrifice for the one who sinned against him? Who puts his own dearly loved son in the place of punishment for the one who is stained with sin? To the one who stands empty-handed, who gives, who gives all to make that one happy and full of joy? Who does that? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who. So, as we take the cup, and we remember that his blood was poured out for our sins to wash us clean. For in Matthew verse 20, uh, chapter 26, it says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink. Our Heavenly Father, you have done what only you can do. And you have done only what you would do. No one else would act this way. But you are gracious and merciful to us. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so our sin is wiped clean because of what your son has done for us on the cross. And now restore to us the joy of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year. The New Year is going to bring us a different direction on Sunday morning in our sermon series. So I thought I would introduce that this morning in just a couple of minutes. I know it's going to be a little bit awkward, but we are not going to go back into Matthew right away. We've been there uh, for a long time. We were there again for Christmas. Did you know we only have 56 more verses and Matthew will be over? So even I cannot stretch 56 verses into how many weeks? I forget how many weeks. 16 Sundays till Resurrection Sunday. So last fall I was thinking, what are we going to do? 56 verses, 16 Sundays, that's really slow. That's, I, I don't have the skill level for that. So, I should tell where, we, where we're going to pick up is this in Matthew 27, 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Well, you have said so, Jesus replied. We're going to pick up right in the middle of the trials, right in the middle when he's before Pilate. And so that's, that's kind of getting ready for Passion Week. Well, for us at least. For him, it's in the middle of, it's at the end of Passion Week. And so we were talking in our home group. And Dave Hagelberg, one of our missionaries in Southeast Asia, was there. And Dave said, they were asking, you know, is it the end times? How far are we into this? What, you know, what's going on? Um, and that's what launched this sermon series. I'm old enough to know and to have heard a lot of discussion about the predictions of the end of time and the church and the trouble of that's going to be, uh, the church is going to be facing And I've heard a lot of Christians say, you know, this is an utterly unique period of history. There's never been anything like it. We've heard that for years. Do you know what? That's actually always true. And so what? I grew up in an era where many said there have never been more signs of the Antichrist than there are right now. But let's not forget that Nero was seen as the Antichrist. At the same time, hundreds of dictators around the world have done the same thing throughout the centuries. We always pinpoint them. And who would be more likely of an Antichrist than Hitler? The slaughterer of the Jews, the partner with Mussolini who came from, you know, the old Roman Empire. Yet all of these end of the world scenarios, they have come and they have gone. G.K. Chesterton wrote, 
With every step in our lives, we enter into the middle of some story, which we are certain to misunderstand. Isn't that the truth? Our perspective is limited. We're not God. We do not hold the universe in the palm of our hands. And our perspective is so short-sighted. I remember a sermon when I was growing up. It had to have been before 1970. And and then it had to be at least a year or two before that. So I figure I was maybe 13 years old. So maybe 1968 or so. He was wound up, the pastor was, in my little dinky church. And he said with a firm passion that I believed Jesus was coming before 1970. It was, it was a traumatic age in which to grow up, and the 60s were pretty, I mean, lots of things were going on. And a 13-year-old, I'm like, before 70, oh my word. What? And I thought about that, and I've thought about that for years. And the signs were there, but it still scared me. But I've heard such predictions many times over the years, and I've learned to say, when the end comes, it comes. Jesus will return, but so far, he hasn't. Maybe my children will grow up, and maybe my grandchildren and their children before he comes. I don't know. But in the meantime, what? Well, i got to live faithfully. So I thought, in light of all that we've been going through together in this last couple of years, maybe we ought to look at what the Bible really does have to say about the end times, about not really that so much, but what do we know for sure? Is he really right at the doorstep? I've used this illustration recently. When you go to Israel with me, there's a lot of places we can go and see, but there's a very few, a handful of places where I can say, you know, Abraham was actually, he saw this. Oh, I'm not supposed to move today, sorry. He's, 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 he's been here. He's seen that. There's this gate that we can see that from the days of Abraham. It's quite amazing. And there's a few places where you can go and you can say, well, Jesus was right here. So what is that in terms of, of the last times? What do we know about it really specifically? That's what I want to explore. You see, C.S. Lewis wrote this advice in 1948. People were concerned about what in 1948? They were concerned about atom bombs, atomic bombs. I grew up, you know, we, those desks, getting under a desk is really going to help you. That's what we did. <laughs> the last Friday of every month, we had our, the siren went off and we got under our desks. Like, I thought it would help, but, you know, what do I know? <laughs> C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are you to live in an atomic age? Well, I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in the age of cancer or of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. You know, don't exaggerate the novelty of our situation. Believe me, we and all we who love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bombs came. Now we just have great great anesthesia. 
So it might not be quite as painful as it used to be. So why go around all afraid and cowering because the science, scientists have added another chance to our painful or premature death? Do we, want, do we so want of, out of our current circumstances, do we so want that, that Jesus has just got to come? Jesus and his return is not an escape. It is a blessed hope. And there's a huge difference. So I think it's time to travel through the land and stand into places where we say, okay, I know this is true. And then what do we do? And what do we really know? C.S. Lewis continued. He said, this is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb come. When, when, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep, thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. And then look at this parenthesis. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. So looking forward, what I would like to do starting next Sunday morning is to find out what the Bible actually says about the coming of the Lord and about the end. And I want to replace our speculation with a clear focus of what the Bible has told us to do all along. Fear God. Trust God, be wise, be prepared, be faithful, and then ask what we know or what we don't know about the day or the hour as it returns, of his return. Billy Graham put it this way, the forward-looking Christian remains sincerely optimistic and joyful, knowing that Christ will, end, will win in the end. And so that's our journey. The series is going to be entitled, Dear Church. What does Jesus say to the church about such things? What does it actually say about the return of Jesus and what difference that should make in our lives? We're going to begin next Sunday morning in Revelation chapter 5. So you might want to read Revelation 5. We're not going to stay there long and we're not going through the entire book of Revelation. For some of you, you're going to be quite disappointed with the direction this series is actually headed. But I'm not going to tell you today. We're going to start in in Revelation 5 next Sunday morning, so I encourage you to read it. And as we do, we're going to deal with our heart. We are such rebels, are we not? And and the Lord's table, we've come to to a a place where we, we see the need for our forgiveness, the depth of our sin, and the great and wonderful grace of Christ. Because we are rebels at heart. And so Paul's going to come. We're going to sing that and then sort of wrap things up soon.